You'll know when you have a wild woman. She'll practice her craft without boundaries. She is truly autonomous. Her loyalty is only to the family she serves, a midwife who will not allow herself to be held back by a system she didn't create. This podcast is for the birth keepers who want to grow and change. We're open to learning through self-reflection and supportive community. We are creating this space to explore without judgment. We are remembering we were born wild. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Born Wild podcast. We are your hosts, Sophia. Clover. And Emma. And Leah and Nina are out today, but we have with us David. Um, David, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Today's topic is on PMAs, PHAs. I don't know however many acronyms are to describe it, but can you tell the listeners a little about yourself and then maybe just jump into briefly, what is a PMA? What is a PHA? Sure. My, my background is in law and, um, starting law enforcement, um, before I started studying law, but, um, 37, a little over 37 years ago. But, um, and as a part of that uh, education, I became friends with a, a man who was very influential but, uh, in my, uh, my life. But um, he was a chief judge for the federal court system for the Southern District of Ohio and a uh, highly respected law school professor at uh, one of the universities. And because we developed that personal relationship, but um, he kind of became a mentor of mine. And he started teaching me a lot of the things that they don't teach in law school and why they don't teach them. But, um, and one of, the, one of the big things was the distinction between the public domain and the private domain. And the ability to keep our business a private matter, but um, creating a, a private relationship but, um, within our associations, but, um, and it actually creates a private contractual obligation between the association and the members. But we have the ability to keep our business a private matter and outside of the regulatory authority of, uh, of the state and uh, government entities, um, they'll always have the ability to regulate um, our activities or require licensing, but um, in the public domain, as long as we're doing business with the general public. But um, they lose the ability to do that when we um, we make our relationships private. So um, in order to give, give you a little example of that, um, within the natural health care field, we've been taught for a long time that we have to um, kind of censor ourselves. There are there's certain terminology that we can't use uh, related to natural health. We can't use the words cure or treat or diagnose. None of that applies within um, my association. One of my associations is the American Natural Health Association. And that was originally put together because I've been working with natural health care professionals for decades. But um, Within that association, it's a private, a private setting. It's the same as if I'm sitting around my supper table talking to family members or friends. Government doesn't have the ability to come in and monitor my private conversations and restrict me from using any terminology. 
that's the same relationship I have with every member of my association. That's that's private conversation. It's a private matter. Um, you don't have the ability to come in and restrict my language or restrict my activities as long as I'm not causing uh, serious harm or or death to anybody else. Um, the limits to the those are what make up the limits to those um, those protections even in the private domain and that goes back to wording from uh, case law um, all the way back in 1919 um, the the wording of the court says that it, um, uh, clarifies it as a clear and present danger of a substantial evil that's the threshold that you cannot cross. Now, thankfully, the state doesn't get to determine what they consider a substantial evil. There's a test that's been in, in place in the courts for um, over 150 years. But um, basically, if you want to put it into a more common understanding, that um, that threshold of a clear and present danger of a substantial evil, in order to cross that, you're association would have to be engaging in activity that is causing an immediate threat of serious harm or death to somebody else. So for a long time, I've routinely told people, don't create an asso private association and then start following the lead of Jim Jones and drinking, getting people to drink the great Kool-Aid and these suicide packs. And um, you're fine. You stay outside of that, um, of that threshold. But when we get into talking about the private associations, um, you have various types of, uh, of entities. You have private membership associations and private education associations and private health associations, private drinking clubs, social clubs. But, um, they're all versions of a PMA you know, because without the membership, you don't have uh, um, an association anyway but um so you might have associations that are more focused on a specific effort like the health or the education associations but they're all versions of a um, of a pma creating that pma but um when your members join that pma they're voluntarily converting their capacity from a public person to a private member now that's an important distinction because if they're joining your association, you can't just add patient. They have to know they're becoming members. There's no such thing as forced association in this country, at least not legal forced association. So when they become members, they have to be doing so voluntarily. And you always have the ability to act in the capacity of a public person or a private member. But um, so you're membership application and your internal documentation should be um, very clear that within your association they're converting their capacity from a public person to a private member um, so they're maintaining that private contractual relationship and they don't have the ability to take your private business outside of uh, the confines of that association and that uh, private contractual relationship that you have with your members so okay. hopefully that that answers your questions 
Yeah, it does. And I think that's going to be the title of our podcast, Fear and Present Danger of a Substantial Evil. People will be like, I want to listen to this. What's this about? <laughs> it's touching. <laughs> um, I have a couple, like one of the main questions that's popped up for us around the PMA, PHA, that I think other midwives, student midwives listening might be curious about is um, like the difference between us sitting at the table with our family and talking in words and actions. And then like, like our license allows us to buy medications and things like that and carry certain equipment. Um, if we were to join in the PMA, if I had members joining in the PMA, would that restrict us from using our license at all and any of the equipment and medications that allow us, um, that our license allows us to carry? When we start talking about licensing, um, yeah, I guess that would be a good to, first question like, could you still hold a license? Yeah, they kind of, well, they kind of need to understand that the definition of license has always been written permission to do something that would otherwise be illegal. Okay, so if you're going to ask the state for permission and hold that license, now you're going to be subject to whatever terms they put in place governing operating under a license, you're operating with their permission. But, um, and they can regulate those activities. But um, everything under a license is done in the public domain. It's the same as uh, transacting business with the public. Uh, um, there are times and instances where it benefits you to, but, um, to operate in the public and the private. Um, we're talking about uh, healthcare. The most, um, the most common example would be um, a, a medical doctor that needs to maintain that license in order to be able to write prescriptions or get access to the diagnostics and labs. But um, they can hold their license for that purpose. Um, but at that point, they're actually operating two separate entities, a licensed entity and a private domain entity. Business going to be conducted under the licensed side of that business is still subject to public domain governance. But um, it's not uncommon for some of these medical doctors to have but, um, both entities, public and private, operating out of the, um, out of the same offices. So when they're clients or patients, or um, I'm, I'm not going to concern myself with uh, the terminology that we're supposed to be restricted from. But uh, this is uh, a, a private conversation. So um, when they start looking at, um, at at treating their um, their clients or their patients or their members, but um, initially they'll see them as a a licensed medical doctor. But um, and if they have a need to write prescriptions or anything, they'll do that as a licensed doctor. But um, once, most commonly, once that uh, um, initial consultation has ended, but um, they'll make them members of their private associations. Um, so the actual treatment and care can be um, become a private matter, private contractual matter, and keep them out of the jurisdiction of the um, the state governing boards, the medical board uh, boards, and health department, and in some cases the FDA. 
um, if you don't have both sides of that entity, then everything that you do is going to be presumed to be um, within the public domain, and that um, it'll be regulated the the matter of uh, um, public health and public safety. But um, you just need to have the need to maintain the ability to take your private business out of uh, the ability to regulate it um, with those statutes and um, and keep it a private matter. That makes sense. Um, another question that popped into my head is if you are, as a midwife, serving, um, you know, your members um, within the private membership um, and some of the information travels to law enforcement, you know, however that might happen. What do you do as the association? Are you allowed to just not give any information? Like what would be the next steps? Cause I, I'm sure that's one of the concerns is about like, well, what happens if people outside of our membership start getting involved or trying to be involved um, and want to know details about, you know, a birth or something? Um, what are we- well, when you ask what you, when you, um, when you ask, what are you allowed to do? Mm -hmm. um, that's up to you. As long as you haven't crossed that threshold of a substantive evil, but um, that's up to you. Mm -hmm. If you're not governed by public laws, you're gonna be governed by some set of laws or rules. But, um, and in this case, the governing law is the bylaws of your association. Mm -hmm. So, and with the founding documents of your association, um, the most important decision you're going to make in regards to your association is um, is the documents, the founding documents. Mm -hmm. Everything that you're allowed to do or uh, um, everything you have the ability to do and every protection you have the ability to invoke is all going to be determined by the wording of your founding documents. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, any protections that you give up knowingly or unknowingly are going to be determined by the wording of your founding documents that's why we, we stress that it's um that it's very important that your documents not be statutory compliant if your founding documents are declaring that you're subject to the laws of the state you can't come back later and claim you're not subject to public law your founding documents have already declared it so when we start getting into um, the question of others outside of your association trying to get involved in um, the business of your association. But, um, long for, I spent 18 years as, as a cop, so I, I can see this from both sides. And law enforcement wants you to think that, that um, they have the ability to come in and get involved just because they're law enforcement. They can tell you they want to see your internal documents, they want to see membership, or they want to see internal business you have and the way we're taught that um most people would just provide that to them mm -hmm. but um but within the members of your your private or the within the the private association you don't have that requirement it's not public business but um as i said before the biggest need for these protections historically in this country have always been centered around but um natural health care and alternative health care However, that's not where the um, the limits have uh, have stayed or been defined. Um, at one point, the um, the the private 
private associations, private organizations became a, a huge part of the civil rights movement in this country. Because at one point, the state of Alabama tried to order the NAACP to turn over their membership rosters to the state. And the state Supreme Court said, if you're going to be doing business in Alabama, then you're going to have to comply with Alabama law. Um, when it made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, they didn't see it the same way. They told the state of Alabama, you guys need to take a step back and, and stay in your own lane. You're exceeding your jurisdiction. You do not have the authority to ask for or demand that um, any of the uh, the records of the internal business of a private association. But, um, and we commonly get people asking for more current case information, but um, they want to see how the courts are interpreting things now. And one of the things that they don't realize is the longer case law stands, the more strength it has. But, um, but if you have a need to, to see something a, a little more current, and look at 2017, um, the, a, a group of, uh, of Democrats got together in New York and tried to sue the DNC. They said that uh, the DNC represented to Democrats across the country that they were going to endorse Bernie Sanders for president. And then against the wishes of most of the Democrats, they endorsed Hillary Clinton. But um, if you look at the transcripts that, um, of that court case, the court said it's not justiciable, but um, you're talking about the internal business of a, a private organization. Um, it's not within the jurisdiction of the court to um, mandate or regulate the internal activities of a private organization. So um, it's not just all old irrelevant case law. Your privacy is protected. But um, one of my favorite court cases from US law history is Hell versus Hinkle from 1906. Back then, the Supreme Court didn't guard their wording um, like they do now. But within that decision, the court specifically said no citizen owes any duty or obligation to the state or to his neighbor to disclose his private business. Now, the very next paragraph, they went into talking about corporations and why you can't keep government out of the um, regulating a, a corporation. But, um, but that was in 1906. Now, only... Uh, 22 years later, in 1928, um, they decided another case, this Olmstead versus the U.S., and that one was specifically on um, on the issue of privacy. But um, and now that one I can't I can't quote as clearly as I can the sections of Hell versus Hinkle, but uh, summarizing it that um, the Supreme Court clarified that the right to privacy that, um, is one of the most influential um, rights that we have, but um, it's, it, it's a basis for um, the freedoms within um, a, a free society. And any encroachment by government, but, um, by any means, but, um, other than a court order, uh, would be an infringement of your your Fourth Amendment rights. But, um, so the rights to privacy but, um, are uh, are not specifically identified within 
the constitution or the state constitutions. But um, but I've also taught the constitution for over 26 years. And I'm, I'm a student of history specifically around that time period of our founding fathers. And I've, I, I can't tell you the number of hours I spent um, focused solely upon learning the mindset of our founding fathers at the time, what their intentions were. But, um, and at the time there was the thought that you might have to identify, uh, specifically identify your right to privacy um, was something they, it was beyond, uh, beyond their, their thinking. It was just something that would have never been attacked. So we had to wait for the court's interpretation of those intentions to, um, to start getting anything in, in law that actually identified your right to privacy as a fundamental right. And there's a significant amount of case law going all the way back to the 1800s to, uh, to protect that right to privacy. The thing is, if you go back to Hill versus Hinkle, it says you have a right to um, a right to keep your business private, basically. But um, when they say no citizen knows any duty or obligation to the state or to his neighbor, it says you have no duty or obligation to disclose your private business. So you need to um, you need to take the steps that um, to ensure that it remains private business that, um, and not in the uh, in the public domain. And I know that there's a piece where you can add in religious um, protections too, like faith-based organizations. Um, can you speak a little bit on like what extra that gives the PMA? Boy. <laughs> yeah, um, that's, when we start talking about the faith-based protections, it, um, it usually creates a, a, a whole new concept that, um, of a conversation to get into. But um, so I want to keep it kind of, um, kind of general. Mm -hmm. But because um, we start getting into the specifics, we could talk about just the faith-based protections for hours. That's another. But, um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we we can look at another podcast for that. Okay. But um, basically, um. With your faith-based protections, but um, you have within the First Amendment, you have a guarantee of the protections of your faith-based protections based upon your religious liberties and freedoms. Okay, the uh, First Amendment that um, addresses uh, some specific things: your freedom of speech, your freedom of press. But um, but out of the um, out of the five things identified, the protection of your religious liberties and freedoms are the very first thing identified within the First Amendment. That's why they're known as your first liberties. But um, so that should give you a, a, a pretty good idea of um, the founding fathers' intentions with, um, when they were establishing um, the Constitution and the amendments a couple years later. But um, everything was centered around the protection of your religious liberties and freedoms. That was the core of what was built. The Queen of England even today refers to the United States as the great experiment. And the reason for that is there was never, prior to this, there was never another country and there still has never been another country since then that was founded based upon Christianity and Christian principles. Now, our founding fathers that um, drafted the doc, all of the documentation 
to allow, in their words, that, um, a, a tolerance um, for an acceptance of but, um, all other religions. But the country was founded based upon the Christian beliefs and the Christian morals. But, um, so when we start talking about the protections of the faith-based entities, you've got to realize scripture is a higher authority than the state. It always has been. But, um, and as long as this um, this country is operating under that original constitution, it will always be that way. The states really don't like for you to know that. That's one of the big reasons our system of public education has changed um, so much over the decades. But, um, but scripture is the highest authority you have the ability to invoke in this country. And when you start invoking the protection of your religious liberties and freedoms, you have a higher authority that you have the ability to invoke and a higher level of, of protections. Not only do you have the ability to um, invoke the protections of, of your, uh, your rights to privacy and your rights to private contract, now you also have the ability to invoke faith-based protections but, um, in which you're reliant upon your faith in nature and nature's God. Now that terminology is important. Um, especially when it comes to your founding documents, because a reliance upon your faith in nature and nature's God is a direct quote from Thomas Jefferson. Judges don't like to argue law with Thomas Jefferson as a general rule, but um, it's also wording that comes from our, uh, our Declaration of Independence. So not all uh, private entities are capable of invoking those protections. Um, I've had people over the years that have had, uh, for example, a heating and air conditioning business that, um, that they want to try and protect as a faith-based entity. Now, I, I'm generally pretty open-minded, but even if I stretch my own mind, I, I find it pretty hard to justify installing an air conditioner as a faith-based activity. But there are, um, there are some associations that are perfectly in alignment with a faith-based activity, such as a ministry or an unincorporated church. And I'll talk about that a little more in just a minute, but, but um, anything that's, that's got to do with health or reliance on natural health, um, education, these are things that are perfectly in alignment with, uh, with a ministry anyway. But, um, so it's, uh, it's a lot easier to invoke those protections um, and stand upon uh, upon your faith, but um, when you have something that that aligns with uh, with scripture and aligns with your um, your ministries and um, your interpretation of um, of ecclesiastical law, which is ecclesiastical law is just a synonym for uh, uh, for scriptural law, but scripture is the highest authority you have the ability to invoke in this country. Now I'm. I mentioned uh, the unincorporated churches, um, medical churches. But, um, it's it's important that we make that distinguishment because when you hear the term state church, they're talking about an incorporated church, which unfortunately most churches across the country are nowadays. A free church refers to an unincorporated church. And if you want to you want to have a little more clear understanding of that, you can 
go back again to hell versus Hinkle, where they start talking about the corporations. A corporation is a creature of the state, and it's presumed to be um, created for the benefit of the public. You cannot create a corporation based upon your own authority. You have to petition the Secretary of State to do that on your behalf. That makes the state the creator. They turn the control of that corporation over to whoever's founding it. Now, there's a maxim of law that says the creator will always have the ability to govern the created, and the created can never be superior to the creator. So as long as your churches are operating as incorporated entities, they are creatures of the state, but um, and they're subject to whatever regulation comes along with um, uh, with being a creature of the state. For decades, it's been frustrating to talk to um, uh, church leaders that were um, that have been through this system of indoctrination, but um, and it was pretty common to have church leaders. Uh, make comments like we can live with a certain amount of regulation it's better just to not make waves and not rock the boat well but um in my mind but uh, that's not an acceptable answer there, there was never a time in scripture where it even indicated that, that um jesus might be okay with uh with with regulation you should just not rock the boat that's not what scripture tells us but, um, but I don't want to get too deep into uh, um, a, a, a scriptural discussion here, but um, the, that point needs to, be, um, needs to be made when we're talking about the protections of an incorporated church versus an unincorporated church. In 2020, we saw things starting to happen in this country that I didn't think I would ever see. But um, the state started overreaching but um and a lot of their mandates and executive orders and a lot of people are just tolerant and accepting of that but um but one of the one of the things that started happening is um the state started telling the churches uh, that they have to close down or they have to put social distancing requirements in place and limit services to 10 people or 50 people depending on which state they were in so the people started coming back and saying, wait a minute, what about the separation of church and state? And so many of the church leaders had to start going back to their own congregations and telling them we voluntarily gave that up when we became an incorporated entity. So that's just one of the ways that the, um, the churches become regulated but um, as an incorporated church. Um, they become regulated at the state level. Now, the federal government gets involved when they become 501c3 entities because uh, a 501c3 is a charity. Now, you can call it a church or call it whatever you want. That doesn't change the fact that 501c3 is a charity. Charities are regulated but, um, by the Johnson Amendment that went into effect in 1954. That's the primary means of federal government having the ability to regulate any of the activities of the incorporated churches. There are certain things they can't preach about, they can't teach, they can't discuss within their churches. Um, it's mostly all related to politics. But, um, the Johnson Amendment but, um, was uh, Lyndon Johnson, was the senator that but, um, was responsible for the Johnson Amendment. 
Lyndon Johnson had two very large Christian organizations um, that did not want to see him in office, but um, and but um, they made their opinions very public, and the churches were having too much of an influence on on politics and government's mind, so they wanted to find a way to keep the churches from political influence, and that's where the Johnson Amendment came from. But in order to enforce the Johnson Amendment, they had to get church leaders to voluntarily give that separation up and subject themselves to the Johnson Amendment. But, um, so that's why the church leaders and the seminaries across the country started being taught that they need to incorporate their churches and they need to become five one c three entities. So uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on it, and that's really not my business. But um, for me, when I go to church, I I don't want a corporation being my church, but um, I want scripture dictating the way my church operates not the state or, or federal government but that's the big distinction when we start talking about incorporated churches versus unincorporated churches and the ability to um, to stand upon your religious liberties and freedoms yeah you mentioned uh 2021 and maybe the 2020 how our world got a little wonky um and I think I remember you saying that your poor wife thought you were retired and then all of a sudden you weren't. Um, did you see a huge uprise in people contacting you for, to create PMAs because specifically because of COVID? Yeah, I tell people almost every day. I'm, when I retired, I brought everything I do under the umbrella of my ministries, which is David versus Goliath Ministries. But, um, but I'm, I'm supposed to be retired. <laughs> but um, but I, I work more hours now than I ever have in my life, by far. But um, but um, I'm okay because it's something I'm passionate about. So it's not like um, it's not like I'm still spending every day working. But um, now um, it's not uncommon for me to try and push 100, 110 hours a week into a 40-hour work week, which never works. But but um, yeah, I stay busier than I ever have in my lifetime. Um, but I'm okay with that because in my mind, it's, um, it, it's a passion and it's, it's what I'm called to do. Um, I've tried to go without talking about PMAs or without talking about um, faith-based organizations. And um, so far, I've never been able to accomplish that for more than, more than a day or two. But, um, so I, I would like to get to the point where maybe I could go spend a day on the golf course once a week or once every couple of weeks, but, but um, it's, I'm, I'm not sure it'll ever get back to that. 2020, I had a, I did an interview with uh, um, James Grundig for an episode of, of Hardline last year. And I told him during that interview that I was compiling a list of mailing addresses for 49 of the governor's mansions in this country, but um, because I intended to send every one of them either a thank you letter or a Christmas card, but um, because this is information I've been trying to teach people for um, 35 years. Mm -hmm. And now because of the stupid decisions of 49 of our governors, I've got millions of people looking for information that I've been trying to get to them anyway. So I, I, owe, uh, I owe a thank you to every one of those governors for making the stupid decisions that they made. 
and and causing people to um, to look for these protections anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so, can for anyone listening, can anyone create a PMA for practically anything, or are there restrictions around that? Like, why might somebody want to create a PMA in general? You can convert almost any business um, to a, a private association. There are um, there are some businesses where it benefits you to keep a public domain presence and a private domain presence, like we were talking about with the medical doctors needing those licenses. Um, there are a couple of businesses um, or industries that you're just not going to make work. But, um, until recently, but, um, the banking industry was one of those. Now we have options for uh, for private banking um, with currency that's actually backed by silver instead of being backed just by a promise of, of government to repay it. But, but um, insurance, insurance is something you're never going to be able to um, to take to the private domain. It's designed that, um, for the public and the underwriters write it for the, the benefit of the public. But for the most part, but um, any um, any business entity or activities can be uh, um, protected but, um, as a uh, a private domain entity, a private association. But um, and it all comes back to um, to your rights. But um, knowing your rights is the most important thing. You can't stand upon your rights if you don't know what they are. Yeah. But um, and that's a big part of why I've taught the Constitution for. Um, for over 26 years, yeah. you, you no, been... nobody nowadays knows what's um, what's in the Constitution. When I was young, I I went in the military, and then I followed that up with the police departments. And um, every part of my public life, I've taken an oath to um, protect and defend and support the Constitution. But um, and it was it got to be frustrating being surrounded by people all day, every day that have taken the same oath when you find out that they don't even know what's in the constitution. So how can you take an oath to it if you don't know what's in it? Mm -hmm. That's why I started teaching the constitution to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned insurances can't, couldn't be um, under a PMA. Would like a HSA, like a health savings account, would that work? Well, your, um, your PMA can, um, your PMA can get insurance, but, um, but if you're getting insurance, that that individual relationship is still going to be governed but, um, by a public domain relationship. You got to keep in mind, you don't give up um, anything with a PMA, but um, you still have the ability to act in the capacity of a public person or a private person. Now, the trustees of your PMA are going to have the ability to invoke public domain relationships if it's going to benefit their their PMA. So if um, if it's going to benefit the uh, the association and the members for them to enter into a public domain contract with an insurance agency, then but um, that's that's their own their own business. But that portion of their business will be governed by public law. Got it. Got it. Yeah. That was really thorough. Um, Emma and Clover, did any questions pop up? Um, for you as you were listening? Yeah, I guess one question that I had was kind of just around what what are the big mistakes that you see people make when they're trying to set up a PMA? Like in 
when does it fail or what could you do to make it not work? I mean, I'm sure that's a big conversation, but maybe like the big Statutory thing. Statutory compliant documents. That's the, yeah. um, that's the most common problem. We've got too many people out here, but um, creating documents that don't have the knowledge they should have to create those documents. And some of them have been doing it for a very long time, but they don't know the difference between statutory compliance and non-compliant documents. But um, I've, uh, I, I've been encouraging people for decades to learn and to teach others. But, um, but um, there, there, there are companies out here that um, are continuously turning out statutory compliant documents. I've had uh, two different chiropractors that have paid over $10,000 for founding document packages. And that, um, what they received were statutory compliant documents. So I had to go back and rewrite their founding documents for them to begin with. That is, um, that is one of the biggest mistakes that, um, that's made is, but, um, it's going to be extremely important that, you're working with somebody that knows the difference between statutory compliant documents and not compliant documents. That's why everybody that's on, on my website as an advisor, um, my, uh, my newest website is um, getyourpma.com. Now, when you go to that website and you look at our team, um, that page is getting ready to change. But, um, but um, does everybody that's listed as a PMA advisor are people that I've trained or I've mentored, but um, so um, everybody within that uh, that organization, but um, knows the difference between statutory compliant documents and non-compliant documents, and has the ability to uh, to draft those non-compliant documents. We have too many associations across the country that think they have protections that they don't have because of their founding documents. And hopefully they can all stay under the radar and never become challenged. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, if they ever do become challenged, they're, they're gonna find out they don't have those protections that they thought they had. Yeah, speaking of being challenged, um, if somebody who has a PMA is ever challenged, is there like a blanket statement that they should just say? Because I'm sure if they're like, oh no, I have a PMA, people are going to be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. You know, like most of your law enforcement is not yeah. going to know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, is there just like a blanket statement that you should say when you're challenged and just keep repeating? Yep. <laughs> like, what, what would you do? <laughs> yep. Just tell them we're conducting um, private business, but um, you are not a member of this association. So go away. Don't come back unless you have a warrant. Now, if you'd like to become a member, then you're welcome to, um, uh, to join the association. But um, this is private business, and in most cases, but um, people are actually putting up no trespassing signs, no trespassing members only. But um, if somebody from a regulatory agency comes in there, but um, I used to have a uh, a notice of trespass that um, that I circulated, and but um, I've replaced that with one that was created by um, Chris Ann Hall. Now I don't know if you guys know or are familiar with Chris Ann Hall. But um, Chris Ann Hall was an attorney in, uh, in Florida after she got out of the Army. Um, actually, she was a prosecutor for the state of Florida. But, um, and the, her boss told her she had to stop teaching the Constitution on the side because she was teaching people where their limits are. And when she refused to stop teaching the Constitution, the state fired her. But, um, but um, 
the notice of trespass that I circulate now is one that was drafted by her because I like her wording better than the wording I used previously. So if somebody comes up and tries to trespass on my ministry, that, um, uh, then I'm simply going to tell them this is private property. If you don't have a warrant, you have no business here. Here's a notice of trespass. Now you have written notice. But, um, so if you come back on my property without a warrant, I'm going to press charges for criminal trespassing. And that um, you can serve them with a PD with a cease and desist. But um, um, that's the same thing the state's going to do to uh, uh, to most of uh, most of the people that get challenged until they find out they don't have the uh, the ability to enforce public regulations. They're going to start with sending you usually a warning. And then a cease and desist letter telling you to um, uh, stop whatever activity you're engaging in. But um, that's the that's the most common means when associations when they do try to trespass against associations. So you had that off in the beginning by giving whoever comes to your door a, a, a trespass notice and tell them it's private business. But um, if they continue to try and pursue it, then you just send them the same type of cease and desist notice the state would send to you. It doesn't usually go that far. But um, the, uh, the people that are out there knocking on your door may not know anything about the private domain or private relationships. That, um, um, but their supervisors do. The administration and those agencies do. The courts know. But, um, so but, um, usually... Um, if you take that approach, but, um, you may have somebody that wants to be a rebel, try and, uh, um, try and push their agenda, um, but, um, and enforce things that aren't enforceable on you anyway. Um, but it's, um, it, it's a lot more common for everything just to, to stop once it gets back to a supervisor or administrator, um, that, knows that there's a difference between public business and private business. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, I'm seeing PMAs pop up here and there just in our little town. There's a coffee shop nearby that says members only. It's like a dollar lifetime membership or something like that. And then where my kids go to martial arts, it's they have a PMA too and they have a sign Good. on their door it says private members Good. only. Yeah. So I'm seeing them more and more pop up. It's really reassuring. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. If anybody wants to reach out to you, connect with you, can you just tell the listeners what your contact info is and we'll make sure to include it in the show notes? Sure. I have, um, let me put something in chat here. I may help. Mm -hmm. Okay. I still got the old website at pmapower.org, but um, but our newest and by far most active website is getyourpma.com. There's a lot of information on on the websites that um, a lot of the documentation, a lot of the case law we've been talking about, and more. But um, but the getyourpma.com is the only one of the websites that has contact information for um, certified trained PMA advisors. Um, if you're looking to get a hold of, of me individually, but, um, I have, uh, uh, my cell phone number is on that website. In fact, let me put it in here for 
But don't you call him because he's retired. <laughs> no. But, um, the web, the number that I just put in chat is, um, is a cell phone number. Great. Now, when you go to one of the two websites, that, um, either uh, pmapower.org or getyourpma.com, um, you can contact me through the uh, through the website. Um, there's an email address, at, um, an info at getyourpma.com, or you can send a message. It's going to be a lot more productive if you um, if you send me a text or something. But um, it's it's pretty hard most times to get me on the phone. But um, if we don't have a time schedule to talk, because I spend so many hours on the phone now, but um, I I usually miss at least ten or twelve calls when I every time I'm on the phone with someone else. But um, it, the a, a text is going to come straight to my phone. Um, I have a Gmail address that comes straight to my phone. I love having the addresses at the domain names, but the problem is that there's too many people that are wanting information. Mm -hmm. So right now I've got one of the domain names. I've got over 1800 emails that haven't even been opened yet. I haven't even oh. had time to open them. Oh but um, so um, it's going to take a while to get through those. I've got one of the other email addresses. It's got, um, as of yesterday, it was 796 emails that are still unopened. But um, so um, if you want to reach out to me individually, then but um, I'll end up giving you a, um, my Gmail address because that's the one that comes straight to my phone. So, but um, it's uh, it's a lot faster than waiting for me to wade through another two thousand emails somewhere else to get your contact information. I try and keep on top of that, but unfortunately, there's only so many hours in the day, and if I if I get through thirty or forty emails today. But, um, and then overnight, I get another 60 or 70 that need to be responded to. I keep getting further and further behind every day. And that's why the, um, the PMA advisors are, uh, are, are getting to be a lot more active but, um, in, um, in helping people. So if, if you want to talk to me directly, but, um, my contact information is on that website. But, um, and you can make it available here. Or you can go to the website, get a hold of one of the PMA advisors at, um, at their own email addresses that are listed on uh, on the site. Those PMA advisors are not my employees, but um, I'm retired, but um, or supposed to be retired. But, um, they're um, they're just uh, um, advisors that have been um, uh, that have been trained and mentored by me. But um, and we have a uh, now we have a worldwide certification in place through a, a private university um, to um, certify the advisors. So once they've, once they've been trained and mentored, they'll always have the ability to get a hold of me if there's questions they don't know how to address, but that's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. um, they, uh, they're just as competent um, to assist you as if you're getting a hold of me directly. Um, right. A lot of people, a lot of people want to come straight to me because I'm the one that taught those advisors in the first place, and I, I I'm fine with that. I'll I'll be doing this until the day I die. I, I know that, and I'm okay with that. So if you want to reach out to me, but um, 
get a hold of me, whether it's a PMA or a faith-based entity, and we can address any other questions or concerns that you have. I can provide you with additional more detailed information on the different structures and but um, I'm, I'm very happy to do that. This is um, this is what I do. That's that's what I've done for almost four decades. So um, that's what I'm here for. Yeah, well, we feel really lucky that we got to rope you in for an hour of your time. <laughs> Sorry, you have 500 more emails to respond to now. <laughs> that's okay. That's 500 more people that need, that need help. And can, yeah, yeah. We can get them addressed. But um, I do want to mention... Um, uh, it's probably a little off topic, but um, there's a, another private association. Um, so many of the uh, private associations have been trying to figure out how to conduct banking and keep themselves out of public relation from the, the banking perspective. But, um, and uh, several of the private associations have been um, trying to structure themselves so that they have the ability to do that. The problem is when you're trading in Federal Reserve notes, they're public currency. So you have severe limitations on being able to take that out of the governance of uh, public entities. There's uh, one, but um, one private association that um, they started this process that um, back in 1998, they've just kind of grown to what they are now but um, they're offering the ability to trade in a private currency that's actually backed by um, silver because our U.S. dollar isn't backed by gold or silver anymore. It's just based on the government's promise to repay. But, um, but uh, we're seeing a lot of local merchants and local business owners um, that are actually getting excited about accepting a private currency that's backed by silver. So it's not going to lose its value. But um, um, so um, that's still progressing. And but, um, I was just told the day before yesterday that very soon we're going to have the ability to um, to get debit cards that, um, for our silver accounts that we can also spend that, um, at, uh, on a, um, spending the U.S. dollar equivalent from our accounts. So if we get corporations we need to deal with that don't want to take um, silver, then uh, we can convert those transactions to U.S. dollars. But um, so uh, keep in mind, um, that's, a, that's an option for uh, private domain transactions with a, uh, a currency that um, is actually based on, uh, um, on a silver reserve but, um, instead of a, a fiat currency. So anybody wants more information about that I've, I've got a, um, a website I can send them to um, as well but it is a, um, a private association so it stays outside of the governance of the federal banking regulations great yeah we would love any of that contact info for us and for listeners who are interested That's awesome. I will I will email you with a, 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 an address and you can go take a look at the site and the content that's on the site and figure out whether or not you think it's going to be beneficial for your members. Um, I absolutely believe it will be beneficial for anybody in this country. If not, I wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have mentioned it on the podcast. But <laughs> but um, you can go take a look at the website and, um, and figure out for yourself if you think it's going to be beneficial, and then decide whether you want to 
um, you want to include it or not. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was great talking to you and we'll have to have um, a, a round two episode. <laughs> well, sure um, we're going to have a lot of questions. Let me, uh, let me know when you're, when you guys are ready to do that, we'll, we'll get something scheduled. Because um, I've had fun. It's, uh, um, it's been a nice little break to what I thought was going to be just a completely stressful day. So <laughs> I do need to get back. I do need to get back to work, but I'm not in any hurry to do it. This is <laughs> a, a more relaxing, enjoyable atmosphere. <laughs> Well, thank you again for joining us. If you guys uh, need anything, you know how to get a hold of me. And I guess in the meantime, I'll, I'll send you a, um, an email. And uh, feel free to um, get a hold of me with any other questions, concerns, but, um, whatever needs to be uh, dealt with so that people can make an informed decision instead of just jumping into a decision. Thank you. So, thank you. You guys have a great day. Thanks everybody for listening. You can find us at Born Wild Podcast on Instagram. For inquiries or feedback, you can email us at bornwildpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me, Emma Ray, on Instagram at Emma Ray, R-E-A. Sophia at sophiabirth.com. And me, Leah, at Bay Area Home Birth. We would really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us reach more people. And as always, stay, stay wild. wild.